Hi guys, it's Karen. Sometimes I go by my real name, Kristen. Welcome to Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. She was one of the founders of the Open Schools Movement here in Portland, Oregon, and I'm just so grateful to her for her work and her advocacy on behalf of kids. Remember, if you want to support the podcast, please tell a neighbor, tell a friend, tell somebody you know about it, link to us, share us. Thank you so much, and thanks for joining us today. Kim McGair is in the studio. Kim, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm so great. I'm so glad that you came. I'm really excited to talk to you. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the open schools movement, because that's how I ended up meeting you virtually on Twitter was I was trying to find other parents who were interested in opening schools because I felt like, frankly, I felt like I was the only one. Yeah, that's, I think a lot of us felt that way. Well, interestingly, um, I got involved, I started to post on just, I'm old, so I started to post on Facebook. I wasn't really on Twitter, but I would say in the summer of 2020, I like shared a few articles about other states that were opening, shared some of Emily Oster's work towards the fall on how schools could be safe. It was just kind of trying to get a dialogue, you know, in my own very small Facebook world. I've been active in PTA, I've been active in um, foundation. So I have a lot of parent people, parent friends on Facebook and, um, you know, wasn't getting a lot of traction. And then, you know, Renee Gonzalez, who we both know, uh, he, we all knew him. So I knew him from soccer and then Leslie Beanan and Daniel Mackey, we all knew each other kind of from soccer, but like, this is what's so great about Renee. He kind of looked at his Facebook feed and went, all these people that I know and respect are all saying the same thing let's get together and start doing something about getting our schools opened. And by then, Clack to School, which was maybe the first school opening Facebook, parent Facebook group had formed, Let Oregon Learn had formed, Let Them Play had formed. So we were in opening PDX, not first, although we definitely had the heaviest <laughs> left ultimately. But anyway, that's how we got started. And I mean, we were, Kristen, we were so naive. Like we were totally believed that, all we needed to do was get the data that was out there on how safe schools were, how little risk COVID posed to kids, how other schools were open, safe, and teachers weren't dying. Like, if we could just get this data out into the world, we could open our schools in Oregon. And, of course, little did we know that really nobody cared about the data. <laughs> that's not what it was about. But anyway, that's how we got started. Did I'm surprised you didn't see that coming because I would have thought you would have received a fair amount of backlash on your Facebook feed when you were even questioning whether school closure was the correct, continuing to be the correct move as these other schools, let's say, 
in Texas were in Florida were kind of rolling the dice and everybody wasn't dropping dead. Yeah. I think it's very much the sort of Portland nice, which I don't think is really that nice universe, which is that I didn't get opposing comments. I maybe got silence. I didn't get, I got a few people going like, I agree, but people didn't comment back and say, boy, I disagree. That's crazy. Do you want everybody to die? Because these are my friends, right? My Facebook is not giant. It really is all people I know. Um, and so it was just crickets. And I hadn't kind of gotten on to Twitter at that point to sort of see that there was this backlash. Um, and I just really like, Again, having been involved in pro-school movements, you know, or pro-school activities, sort of my whole parenting life, um, fundraising and supporting legislative funding and just supporting public schools. I'm a huge public school advocate uh, that I just thought, well, everybody's going to see that that school can be safe and that that's where our kids should be. So, I mean, now, as I say that now, it does sound so incredibly naive, but really that's like where we were. I just didn't think that, I thought everybody could see the harm like to their own kids and then particularly to vulnerable kids. But that just wasn't where people were. What was the driving force behind that backlash? Because as you said, they weren't looking at data. So it's not that they didn't, they, they didn't have any, they had no data to support the idea that, that schools were going to kill everybody. Right. What do you think was motivating that, what I would characterize as a very strong pushback to opening schools in Oregon and in Portland in particular. Yeah. And all the really West coast cities. I mean, the big West coast cities, Portland's wasn't much different. San Francisco, than, yeah. Seattle, right. LA, Chicago, Diego, Boston, the mm -hmm. bright blue cities. Yeah. And, and before, actually before you answer that, I, maybe we should do some mandatory throat clearing here. I mean, as you said, you have always been pro public school. And my guess is as a citizen of Portland, Oregon and a pro public school parent, you were probably also a lifelong liberal Democrat. You probably considered yourself very liberal. Um, you probably voted for Biden. You probably voted for Hillary. Yeah. You probably were a two-time Obama supporter. I am a, I used to call, tell people I was a bleeding heart liberal. Um, that's, I was a member of the ACLU. Uh, I like, joined right after Trump got elected. I marched in the Women's March. I mean, I even gave fairly substantial amounts of money by my standards, because I'm not like a loaded person that gives millions of dollars, uh, um, to Senate candidates in 2020 to win back the Senate. I volunteered on the Democratic voter hotline as a lawyer to help people vote in 2020. Like I did not really wake up to sort of the full Democratic policies um, and the harm that they cause really even until 2021. And I was Ter you know, very anti-Trump. And so that really motivated me. But yeah, I mean, I am a bleeding heart liberal and I still consider myself to be an old school progressive, not like the progressives that we see today. Like, I feel like the left has just gone so far left that, I mean, I think somebody, maybe it was Elon Musk tweeted recently the picture of the graph of like, I'm standing here and I haven't moved, but the left has gone way over here. That's how I feel. I feel like the left has left me and I haven't changed in terms, I still believe in public schools. I still believe in, you know, I still believe that we need to revise the healthcare system so everybody gets healthcare. Like I still believe in all of those things. I just have kind of had my eyes open to that. I don't think the democratic party is, 
um, effective in achieving those things and the stuff that they're fighting about and fighting for is is fringe craziness that doesn't really help working families. What happened to them? I what is it just the union money? Is that what it is? And then if that's what it is, I'm struggling to understand just personally and and this is an intellectual puzzle for me. What even if it is the union money, what is the motivation for the unions to so vehemently oppose going back to school when that is de facto their their members office yeah i don't i think those ab- are their jobs yeah i think absolutely the 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 democratic party supporting closed schools is union money a hundred percent. I don't, there is no other explanation. These people get the vast majority of their campaign funds from unions. Um, they also get, and I think we just saw this in the election, their grassroots support, um, is union people. They are foot soldiers for the democratic party. They, I mean, you saw it with Hardesty's election. I mean, I think even Renee would say like she had a great ground game because she can pick up the phone and call PAT and, they're out. They're used to doing it. And um, and Tina Kotek, same thing. She got all the union money. Tobias is like a bazillion times better candidate than she is, but he she got the unions and he didn't. And that's the answer to that election. He didn't have the money she had. Or the sort of being told, the union votes are who they're told to vote for. And um, so that connection is really troubling. And I, I mean, their motivation, I think, I mean, this is so unpopular opinion, but I do believe it that they were like it was a lot easier to teach at home. I mean, first of all, like you got. I mean, my daughter is in high school at PPS. Um, she had a third of a school day, and overall, third of school instructional time. We didn't go to school on Wednesday at all for God knows what reason. Never explained to me why we didn't go to school on Wednesday when we were remote. And then she went to school from nine to twelve every day. Like. Right now she goes to school from you know, 8.30 to 3.30. So it's like I would imagine that if you only have to have instruction half a day, that's a lot better than being in your classroom all day long. Um, and, you know, I people get so mad when you say, well, teachers weren't working. But those are the facts. The facts are that they provided instruction about a third of what they usually do. Um, I get that kids aren't being instructed the entire time they're in class, they're working, but they're working with a teacher present that they can ask questions or who's like, hey, you're not working, what, what are you doing? So I think that was part of it. I do think that the media and the fauciness of the world, like I think a lot of teachers did get legitimately terrified that they were gonna get COVID and die. Um, Maybe that's not legitimately is not the right word. They got genuinely, authentically terrified, um, but that wasn't legitimate or based on any data. And we weren't helped by the media. We weren't helped by Fauci. We weren't helped with everybody saying, you know, schools weren't safe. Um, but I don't, I still don't understand like how you could look at Europe. You could, you know, especially as you get into 2021, schools have been open for months all over Europe all over the South, all over the it's Midwest. It's the best observational study ever. Ever. And it's like, we just kept saying, but, 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 like, look at these schools. Like, do you think Europe wants to kill their kids? And they'd be like, Europe has a better healthcare system. And I'm like, what? What does that have to do with anything? The, the teachers aren't getting COVID and dying. Like England did a study, like in September of 21, of 20, and said teachers were not more likely to get COVID than any other profession. 
it was like, okay, we're done. Aren't we done? Like we just kept putting data after data after data out there and it didn't matter. That wasn't what um, was motivating them. And it, it felt a little bit like a power grab. Like when I think about the union negotiating in March of 2021, when we knew that the CDC was going to reduce the six feet to three feet and everybody knew that was going to happen. It happened the day after the board approved the contract. And the union just flat out refused to go to even the CDC and OHA limit. And I don't do math because I'm a lawyer, but the math people that I know say that would have quadrupled the amount of time kids were in school because it's, right, it's six square feet. And so you can, however that math works. And it's like, I, I mean, as to this day, I don't understand what the motivation was for teachers not to do that. When they knew they were coming back, why wouldn't they want more kids in the building? I don't know. The other thing that's interesting is I heard a lot of circular reasoning from teachers. Just anecdotally, I heard things like, well, our kids are at home, so how would we be able to go back? We're predominantly a female profession still, and women bear the load of child rearing, uh, all of which... I believe is absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> the answer to that is if we open schools, your kids will go back. Right. And daycares and all those things. Like we just need to go back. Uh, yeah, there was that. And then there was like, it did feel a little bit like, um, and I don't think this was originally, but as we moved through, there seemed to then be this opportunity for leverage. Like, I I will say, having spoken to many PPS board members privately, I think they've learned, like, you can't close schools because you can't get them open again. Like, once we closed them, then they had to get PAT to agree to reopen. Like, we were at their mercy all of the 2021 school year. And so then they started to, like, use it as leverage. And it was like, well, we want more pay if we do these clubs, and we want, um, like, you know, ventilation stuff made sense, but it was more than that. It was like building stuff. It was different, more planning time. It's like, what does more planning time have to do with the fact that we're in a pandemic? Like they definitely started, tried to leverage the fact that they, you had to get them to agree to go back to work, um, to get other things that they wanted. And I found that just incredibly offensive when kids are home alone. And, and just to be clear, in case people are, wondering, well, Kim, you know, you're this privileged white woman who's in the professional class. Again, with the, we have to do some mandatory throat clearing here on that. My understanding is your office never closed. Yeah, that's true. Don't tell OJ we might get in trouble. But uh, yeah, no, we, we didn't. Well, but you were, you were an essential worker. I mm-hmm. mean, I think my understanding is, I mean, our office never closed. We were allowed to come in um, lawyers were deemed essential workers, financial professionals. There, there were there was a small sliver of the professional class that was deemed essential worker. Yeah, we yeah we decided we have we have certain practices that are very paper based. Like there are just things that we do. A lot of things are now electronic filing, but you can't send a garnishment electronically. You can't like foreclosure stuff is in paper. So a lot of what we do are a part of our firm does was paper-based. So we knew we had to have some people come in 
And we decided that that wasn't fair to say like only these people came in. So throughout the pandemic, we never closed and we had a hybrid workforce and it was very successful for us. I honestly think our staff, if they look back in 10 years, will think that we did them a favor because they got to keep structure in their life. They got to still see people. They didn't get in this place where so many people are now where they've never set foot in their office in three years or whatever, two and a half years. And like, that's a big sea change. Like we didn't have to do that. And then once we got to like July 21, we switched and we were, we're still permanently hybrid, but people are in more. So I never stopped going to work. Never. There's even a full week, I suppose, unless I, like I had an exposure. So I had to quarantine, but, or I travel. we did those weird things where if you traveled out of state, you couldn't go in, which now right. seems so silly. Right. Um, but I never stopped going to work. Um, I recognize that, uh, like my kids were okay when, like when the, the really, I mean, some of the, not, not all teachers, but there are some teachers that really strongly came after me and my family and my children. And um, some of the things... Tell, that, tell me about that. Say more on that. What do you mean by came after you, your family and your children? I mean, they... Like there is a anti, what I would call, I call them anti-school activists. They get really mad about that. Pro-closure, whatever you want to call them. I mean, she posted on her public Facebook page that I hate my children. A teacher and, did? Uh, no, this wasn't a teacher. This was like a teacher advocate. Um but teachers, they, I mean... What do you think is, is that just mental illness? I mean, what's motivating those people, do you think? I mean, they're like tr- social media trolls. I think they just like That's a to, hobby. Yeah, it's a hobby. But you shouldn't, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, right? Like, and a lot of school activists got this, was like, oh, you hate your kids and you want them to go back to school, which is just insane. Um, but teachers, there were, like, the PAT has a private Facebook group, there were a few people that were on our side and would send us screenshots, but like people like would say where my kids went to school. Um, my, I had, I had interesting, had a child in private and a child in public. So I really got to see both like parallel tracks, both in high school. Um, but would post where my kid went to school suggested that complaints should be made about me to my child's school, which is crazy. Um, that was because I had forwarded a survey and said like, hey, you guys, you should have your kids complete this because it was only a kid survey about reopening. And I put it out on our Facebook page and was like, make sure your kids see this. And sh- and I was accused of like having trying to get parents to complete the survey. I was like, what? And then, um, but and then there were there were, you know, PPS had its own Facebook page and had posts, and people would post there that like my kid had mental health issues, which isn't true. Um, and you know, if your kid has mental health issues, wow. Kim, you should deal with that yourself and not go after other. And none of that's true. Like my kids, wow. blessedly, are fine. But those are actual PAT teachers. I mean, I made complaints to PPSHR about it, and I worried about. And one of them has a child, like at my kid's school, that like that child would troll me on Facebook. People have created like, I have like five fake Twitter accounts that people have created about me, which Twitter thinks is perfectly fine. Like even with my actual name, and I'm fairly certain that those were created by either a teacher or her um, child. And, you know, and that was worrisome. Like, it's really scary to think that your kid could be subject to activity for, or like criticism or, you know, getting canceled, as they say, for things that I did. And then I would back up and be like, but what am I doing? I'm I'm advocating for kids to go to school. Like, I would just have these moments where, like, this is all happening. Like, what am I doing that's so awful? I'm suggesting that schools can be open safely and kids need to be in school. Like, it was upside-down world. 
Do you know if these, is this still happening? No, I don't, not as much. I think when school first still started, there were still some, you know, where they like screenshot us and say terrible things about us. Uh, but I don't, I think now that we're almost through the school year, like that stuff has stopped. But it, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty crazy to, you know, and I don't, I don't know the motivation. And I, I think the other piece that like, always makes me crazy is that was like I said repeatedly like this isn't about my kids like my kids are fine of course they're fine they have like two parent household they my husband works for a government entity and he was home of course because they were closed and like forbidden to go to work and so we were home and we are privileged I 100% agree with that this wasn't about them it was about I started my career in juvenile court I know and working with kids in the dependency system and parents in the dependency system I know what that world looks like and there isn't like I'm gonna like tear up there like isn't a day that goes by that I didn't think about what those kids were doing without the social structure without parent without teachers seeing them and seeing if they were okay and like I have a good friend who's a security officer at Reynolds and one of his jobs was to like go to kids that weren't locked weren't logging in and he would tell me about like seeing like going to an apartment there's no heat the lights aren't on and there's like four kids home alone the oldest is supposed with one laptop I mean what are we doing like it was that's like that is what kept us going and of course we were sadly right because now we know those are the kids that like some of them lost like a year in math and then I never understood like you know the kid like the we also got of course called racist for wanting schools to open which I also never understood um but like those were it was very it was very hard because we would be saying like black brown vulnerable families and to me it's more class than race but it's both are the kids that are going to suffer the most. And and then we would be told, like, oh, you can't, like, because you're white, you can't advocate for those kids. You're not allowed to advocate for those kids because you're white. And I was just, I still reject that wholeheartedly, but it was just a crazy, and it's like, but, okay, but why aren't you guys advocating for those kids, right? Like, what we're saying is true, um, and it was always like, oh, well, BIPOC kids, BIPOC families are more susceptible to the virus. I mean, there is certainly some data to suggest that, but not to the extent that we should close, kept schools closed. There's no evidence that keeping schools closed helped BIPOC, BIPOC families, families not right. get COVID. No evidence of that. Well, and in fact, the data that's rolling in now is pretty overwhelming that the kids who suffered the most are the kids that these groups profess to care the most about they are kids of color right they're they're particularly black kids particularly latino kids particularly indigenous kids Mm -hmm. and they suffered immensely yeah and i don't and now we have a system that i mean that's and how do they ever catch up how do they ever catch up our school system wasn't they were behind before we started how in the world way behind pps was failing them fantastically right before it closed Mm -hmm. and then it closed and now, now they're grades behind in many cases. And I don't know. And, and given PPS's ability and inclination to push people through to graduation, no matter where they happen to be on the academic spectrum, even if they're at the, it, like, I mean, it's astounding how many kids are pushed through that system that are not 
academically ready to enter the world generally. I mean, I think that's why we're just like above Mississippi in regard to education. It's just a disaster. And then, and now we have this to deal with. Right. I just think there's no, I don't know how we fix it. There's no rational, you can't rationally believe that PPS is going or Reynolds or Park Rose or any of the school districts that house, have the, the children most impacted by school closures. Um, that they're going to catch them up. Like even like, oh, well, we're offering summer school and we're using our COVID money. Like look at those offerings. They're not robust. They're not what you need. They're not taught by teachers. Like this is the thing that just blows my mind. It's well, like, right. I mean, now you can sub if you have a GED. Right. Yeah. Or like, but for summer, like these teachers, they all want, I get it. I'd want summer off too if I could get it. But they like, we're supposed to be like, in awe of them all the time and the great things that they do. And I want to be clear, my kids have had some amazing teachers. There are amazing teachers out there. But if if you are dedicated to education and to these kids in particular, why in the world aren't isn't PAT saying just have our actual school open all summer? Like get the just for these kids. If you are in the bottom 20%, you don't get a summer break. You're going to school and we're going to be here. The same teachers you're going to have, you had in the spring and you're going to have in the fall, we're here and we're going to move you along. And that's not happening. There's not one ounce of PAT suggesting that, um, or even PPS, that what we should do is have our actual schools open. That's not what is being provided. It's they contract with these third parties to provide school. Well, that's not school. It's not school by professional educators that know how to teach these kids. And so I just, I don't know. It, the other thing that strikes me as funny, even funny haha, about the idea that as a white lady you can't advocate for black and brown kids, if you read, which I, I have because I think it's it's just, it is so influential in our culture. If you read Kendi's book, Ibram X. Kendi's book about anti-racism, I, I, the way I read that book is white people have all the power mm-hmm. and we have to rely on white people to do the work. Yeah. And if you're not allowed to talk about black and brown kids, that seems to be completely at odds with this anti-racism philosophy that all we should be talking about mm-hmm. are black, what's best for black and brown people. Yeah. That's interesting. It's almost like they think you have to have like their permission. I think what they, to, to rightly summarize what they I think would say the people who said that I couldn't we couldn't speak about black and brown kids is that like yes we should be their allies but only on the only if they it's a position that they personally you know advocate for which I again I think is we particularly in Portland I think we have this like this idea that all black people are a monolith and they all think the same thing. And the, and some of the people that oppose us seem to take that position. So it's like these three black women have said schools should remain closed to protect the BIPOC community from COVID. And that is apparently the position that the rest of us should expect for every black person in Portland. Like I'm fairly confident that there are, well, I know we had black people in our movement. We had black parents in our movement. Renee is Latino. Renee His wife is Latino. Latino. Right. Yeah. And we did, I mean, there were, but like one of the big leaders out in David Douglas to try to get their schools open is a black family. Um, I have one of the people that worked the most with me is a mixed race, you know, mom and dad are a mix. One's black, one's white, you know, all that. Did, did, did you talk to any of those parents of color about their take on these 
epithets and accusations of, of racism? No, I didn't. I should. I've never asked them like what they think about that. I mean, we were just so happy to like bring them into the movement, but yeah, it's a good, it's a good question how they, how they look at it. It's, you know, I, I'm still, I think as a, yeah, I'm getting better at it, but as a white woman and former progressive, I still have like a hard time talking about like, am I a racist person and, and being accused well, it of stings. that? It yeah, stings. It stings. It feels really bad, especially if you've been a progressive your whole life and sort of dedicated your life to, I mean, the reason that Democrats always appealed to me is because the, my understanding and my belief about the party was that they wanted to elevate people who had been historically oppressed Mm -hmm. and they wanted to give voices to people who had existed at the margins, some for very long periods of time and were not being heard and were not being really elevated to allow them to thrive as full human beings. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that was exactly. And just the also I really am like a working families, working poor person in terms of like those people. I mean, I grew up in rural Oregon, so I have. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Roseburg. I went to Roseburg High School. I actually grew up like our house was like south of there in a very small town that had a store and a post office. So that's my you know, I wasn't born there. My dad was in the military. So before my parents got divorced, I moved a lot of places. But my formative years were in rural southern Oregon during like the spotted owl debate. So like I have a very different like perspective on that. And I I mean, I it was a very conservative place to grow up, obviously. And that was when that that was about the loggers Mm -hmm. and timber clearing. And the issue was, if you do this, it will destroy a species. And so there was a big fight between the species preservation people and the working people who were just like trying to pay their bills and who frankly didn't have a lot of money. And the I think a valid criticism of the species preservation group was that they were in a moneyed position and they had the ability to criticize the loggers mm-hmm. and ask them to just like not work anymore. Right. And what are they supposed to do? Like it, Roseburg is a lumber town. It has always been. And you know, they, and they did, they, I mean, it worked. They shut down a lot of logging and it was just a, you know, interesting place to grow up. But I mean, I grew up as a liberal living in that became a liberal living in that environment because I did believe in sort of the environmental arguments. Um, but also I'm just, I've always been a working family who's working poor like that. And that's what I believed like the democratic really foundation of being a Democrat was, was to lift those people up and make sure that working families had a path forward and that there was an ability to like live a better life, have your kids live a better life than you And I feel like they've kind of lost their way on those issues. It sounds to me like you didn't go through any kind of contemplation before you started talking about opening up schools. It didn't occur to you that that would be a dangerous position to take, right? A hundred percent. So you have always done this advocacy under your name, under Mm -hmm. your actual name, under your um, true persona as, as who you are with everybody publicly on public forums with people knowing who you are. If you could roll the clock back, would you, do you think that you'd have trepidation about that? Do you think you would have started anonymously? I don't think so. And I think that's because also 
of a place of privilege compared to some of my other school opening friends. Um, I didn't feel like, I mean, I work at a law firm. Um, we're, you know, we have people of all political persuasions, but it's a, you know, small, medium sized firm with a lot of shareholders, like a lot of owners. And so I didn't feel like I would ever kind of put my employment at risk. Like I didn't. Were you concerned about what your clients would think or whether you would lose any kind of business because of this? No, I guess again, because our client base is fairly conservative, right? They're, they're a conservative client base. We don't represent like woke companies that would find, you know, I mean, I don't have to deal with like what Jennifer say had to deal with at Levi's. That's not where I work and it's not our client base. So mostly from the beginning, once I started getting any press, it was like all positive. It's like so much of this. I can't tell you how many people would reach out to me, lawyers, clients. I saw you on TV. Thanks for all the work you're doing. And yet most people stayed silent. <laughs> it was like, well, it'd be really good if you could help us. But um, I never got any negative pushback. Maybe if I like all the way through. I mean, I had these people from the other side attacking me, but within my circle, I didn't have any issue with my job. My partners were proud of me and the work I was doing. Um, and not my clients were never, like, I never got any negative pushback about that. I suppose to the extent I worried it'd be like sort of the bar, you know, like would a judge be upset if they, you know, you always worry about those things, right? Like you never want to make the judge unhappy and I'm a litigator. So that would be like the only thing that ever crossed my mind was like, gosh, would a judge think that I'm some crazy person and, and, rule against my client on, but that was a pretty minor worry. So I don't think for me it would change, but I totally respect the people that need to be anonymous because of their jobs. Like I totally get that. I mean, you cannot risk your livelihood for, um, this kind of thing. And I was always going to go talk to the school board and do those things anyway. So it was like, I was going to be front and center, but like of our group, there are people that like never agreed to do the TV interviews, um, be like local TV interviews um, because of that, because they were worried about losing their jobs, which is crazy. But look it, at Jennifer saying she lost her it's, job. It's sad. And I have to thank you for your courage, for speaking out and doing all the things that the rest of us were too scared to do and too cowardly <laughs> to do. Yeah. Because be, speaking for myself, you know, I started this anonymously. We were afraid of being called racist. Mm -hmm. um, it was too, it was just too scary of a proposition, particularly as a person who consider, I, I consider myself as always having fought against the things I'm now being called. Yeah. Um, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. It's, it's stunning. Mm-hmm and hurtful and it cuts for when it's a personal point of pride to be a progressive it cuts in a way that I, I mean I can't speak for conservatives I but as a progressive I think more of us were silent because we were afraid of being called the things all the things that our worst nightmares are made of. Yeah, I totally understand that. I think I would put a draw line between like my opening schools advocacy. I'm a hundred percent sure that I, I wouldn't have ever done that anonymously. And it's, I don't think it was even effective um, or could have been because you have to go talk to the board. Um, but I think 
now I am, if I had, like, if I hadn't done open schools, because I also tweet about politics these days, if I hadn't done open schools, I don't think that I would have tweeted in my own name some of my current political positions. Why I think I would have been afraid for all the reasons you yeah. just said. I would have been yeah. really afraid to be, um, like, in particular, the, like, I have strong feelings now about, you know, where women's rights and trans rights collide in my view. And I, I think if like, that's where I started, I can't, I think I would have been too afraid to tweet, but somehow having kind of lived through the school opening moment, you really do get to this, like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Like, I don't kind of care what these people, and my, my beliefs are, rational and they're well they're supported by right. data mm -hmm. and and I just and I have been a like lifelong feminist and I find that um some of the positions that we're taking with respect to or the democrats or the left is taking with respect to transgender issues are um are incredibly anti-feminist and I'm not gonna I mean I look at my own daughters and say like you guys are giving away the last 50 years of work that we've done like what are you doing <laughs> stop it are and, you are you thinking about things like the Biden administration uh, changing on the on websites that names words like mother to birthing person and the ACLU screwing around with Ruth Bader Ginsburg quotes to make them more trans friendly and all that birthing people. Are you crazy? Like we're women, we're mothers. Like don't, you cannot take the word. I mean, as a mother, you can't take that word away. It has a meaning. Um, I just heard just on OPB this morning, it was like pregnant people. I'm like pregnant people. Like what? I just, it's crazy. And I also feel, I mean, the Leah Thomas thing. I, my girls are athletes. I, I find what I find that just to be wrong on every level. Um, we fought, you know, tooth and nail to get women's sports, to get equality with women's sports. And all of a sudden, somebody who's a biological male and has the advantages of having gone through puberty as a biological male is competing with women in swimming. I'm sorry. It's just, I'm, I totally appreciate that person can be whatever they want to be. They can be trans man or trans. I don't, and I, they should be included and they should never be discriminated against or harassed in any way for that position um, But and for who they are. And I would defend that to the ends of the earth, but they they can't, they, they shouldn't be able to compete against women because that's, you're taking away those those rights. And I, I also have strong feelings about gender, what I guess the Biden administration now calls gender affirming care for children under 18. I, I think the idea of, having irreversible surgery for children under the age of 18. I strongly disagree with that. I don't think that's an appropriate thing to do. I think that if, if you've ever had teenagers, um, this, I mean, the suggestion that you can't drink alcohol, vote or be a soldier, but you can consent to having your body permanently altered in a way that may change like your life forever. Um, and when you read detransitioners materials, it's, uh, yeah. So those are my issues. But again, like to the first point, like I doubt that if I had just gotten on Twitter with those positions, I would have done that in my own name. But I've kind of gotten a hardened shell from the opening. What do you say to people who argue that birthing person, words like birthing person and pregnant person are important for trans rights? Because if you identify as a male and you're pregnant, it's very hurtful to hear platitudes and general statements about quote-unquote mothers 
I mean, I, I don't, I guess part of me is like, I don't feel like that, like to say that's hurtful seems strong to me. I'm not a like words or violence kind of person. Um, and the reality is, I guess, that I don't feel like it's appropriate to erase 99.9% of birthing people who are women and mothers um, to accommodate this sort of very small group of pregnant men. Um, I guess, yeah. I mean, that's, and I, I realize that's probably an unpopular position with a lot of people, but I, I think, I feel like we're erasing women. And, uh, and again, just, I'm a lifelong feminist, so it's really hard. I don't see myself getting to a position where I think that we should erase women. I also think that we're potentially erasing gay people of both genders. Um, Andrew Sullivan was on with Barry Weiss. If people haven't listened to that podcast, oh my God, it's so good. He's so smart. But he talks about this idea that, the, you know, what used to be, you know, a boy who didn't conform to gender stereotypes um, would, you know, be perceived as gay or would become gay. And now that that child as young as five, six or eight is being told, well, maybe you're a girl. And, you know, and he as a gay man is worried that we are erasing gay men and gay women uh, or lesbians um, because we're we're and I find the whole thing so fascinating because it's like. In our generation, I mean, I'm squarely Gen X, it, we really got to this place of, like, let everybody be who they are, rejecting gender stereotypes, like, girls can have short hair, girls can play sports, girls can play with trucks, like, that's that's kind of, like, what I grew up, it's how I raised my kids, and then, and now we're saying, like, this, some of this trans issue is, like, where you have to kind of embrace the stereotype in order to go there. So it's like, oh, well, this person likes to, they're non, they're not a woman or they're non-binary because they don't like trucks or dolls. It's like, maybe they're just a person that doesn't like trucks and dolls. I guess we could talk about for a minute the word equity, because I think we've stopped talking about equality and we've started talking about equity. But one thing that I think about that is interesting about the word equity to me is that seems to mean we all end up at the same place. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's should ever be the goal. I don't think it's an achievable goal. I, I think it's completely nonsensical. Um, to the extent equity means like giving people a leg up because we don't all start at the same starting block. That's something I'm totally behind because I, do believe that, I mean, I've always been for affirmative action policies, particularly for, for poor people, for people who've been historically discriminated against and aren't represented. I do think representation matters. Um, but to the extent equity means that we all, we're all entitled to go to Harvard. I just think that's idiotic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. But as a proponent of the leg up sort of um, wing of the equity movement. It, it, one thing that's been difficult for me is last summer, 
my 10-year-old went to sleepaway camp for the first time because I read The Coddling of the American Mind, and I now do what Jonathan Haidt tells me to do. And in the middle of that book, I he's got a whole section about how to make kids more independent, and one of the sections discusses data about sleepaway camps and, and how it helps foster independence. And I immediately put it down and went into her bedroom and I said, you're going to sleep away camp this summer because I had been go, I, I realized that I was screwing up my kids by not putting the same kinds of expectations on them that were on me when I was a kid. And i I feel, uh, there's a little too much free range going on in, in my household, but there, and there could have been more of a balance, but there were some things that I felt were extremely beneficial. One of them was starting sleepaway camp in first grade. And even though that's pretty little and mine certainly didn't start in first grade, um, and it was a little painful, especially at the beginning, I think it really helped me and it helped foster a sense of autonomy and confidence, frankly, yeah. mm-hmm. that I can navigate the world without my parents. Yeah. And and there are many things that I'm, you know, obviously there there were there was adult supervision, but there were many things that I suddenly felt empowered to do after doing things like going away to sleepaway camp by myself or running the neighborhood by myself all summer long that I don't think I would have felt as empowered to do or, or as confident. In, I don't think I would have been as confident in navigating the world. So she goes to summer camp. She goes with a male friend. Uh, this ma- The male peer goes as well. They both come back super excited. And then her friend, her male peer, said, I saw a girl showering. And I said, well, tell me more about that. That must have been really surprising. And he said, well, the bathrooms aren't separated between boys and girls. And I said, okay, so tell me some more about that. And he said, well, I was in there brushing my teeth and there was a girl behind me showering and I saw her showering. And I said, well, you know, what are your feelings about that? And tell me more about that. And he said, I was really uncomfortable. And I said, wow, I feel also so sorry for that girl. And I wonder if she saw you. Do you think she saw you? And he said, I don't know, but it was, I left before I considered whether she saw me and I left before making eye contact in the mirror or turning around and sort of staring and figuring out whether she could see me too. And, and I verified it with my kid that, yeah, the bathrooms are not separate. Now I had no idea about this going in. Had I known, I I think there would have been a lot more conversations about what to expect and I think Mm -hmm. there would have been a lot of phone calls to the camp itself to find out exactly what the hell was going on the other thing that they did was everybody had to introduce themselves with their pronouns and the children were told if they got pronouns wrong they would be sent home and I have an anxious kiddo she's very down with these pronouns and I think she was rightly and I think all of us I mean if you're a reasonable compassionate person, particularly if you consider yourself as being on the left the majority of your life, you're going to respect somebody's pronouns. It's a no-brainer. But she was concerned because there were, she said there were a fair amount of adults who were counselors whose pronouns didn't match their phenotypical traits. And it was difficult to remember that someone wearing a dress and had long hair was a he, him. There was a fair amount of 
consternation and eventually she determined it doesn't make sense for me to return because I don't want to be up all night for a week stressing about people's pronouns. And I just thought my takeaways were that's a lot to put on little kids. Um, and, and I think it's unfair to expect small children to remember I'm not I'm not talking about respecting pronouns. I think that's a simple lesson to teach about it, the golden rule and do unto others. That's not what I'm talking about. I think it's a lot to expect little kids to to remember that pronouns that may be at odds with people's phenotypical traits. Mm-hmm. I think that's absurd. And and I let her know, you're not you're not a bad person. You're not a bigot. Because you couldn't remember somebody's pronouns that didn't match how they appeared to you. I was also told um, from her male peer that he didn't know whether his counselor was a man or a woman, which as a sex abuse lawyer immediately concerned me um, because the first thing I thought was I, I will not allow my kid to sleep in a room with a male stranger. I just, I won't do it. What I'm not comfortable with is sending her to a camp with a male counselor that she's sleeping in a cabin with, that she's changing in front of. They change in these cabins. Right. They change in front of each other. So I, when she expressed a potential interest in going back, I started discussions with this camp to try to figure out what was going on. And I went through the handbook to find out if there was something that I had missed. There wasn't anything that I had missed. There wasn't anything in the handbook about that last year. This year, they've added pages about it. But the pages are buried in the LGBTQ section. They are not front and center on the website. None of this information is in any way accessible to somebody who's busy or who is not doing a deep dive into this camp. And that really troubles me. I think if you're going to do this kind of configuration you've got to be upfront and clear with parents about what to expect and you've just so that everybody's on the same page and frankly so that the kids are educated about what they might see right or what they might expect i mean to send a kid to camp to send a a 10 year old girl or an eight-year-old girl or or a six-year-old girl to camp and not say you might see a male adult penis while you're there yeah is insane it's insane and so i went to the the latest handbook and I went to the LGBTQ section and a fair amount of this, although not all was laid out. Yes. The bathrooms are not separated by gender. Shower facilities are not separated by gender. Cabins are not separated by gender. And in order to determine and and part of what confused me is um, there was a questionnaire last summer that I filled out where they asked whether I wanted my kid in a female cabin Um, and I said, yes, unequivocally. And then I just thought, oh, maybe they have like some gender neutral cabins, but it's cool that they're allowing me to state my preference for a female cabin. Well, now I know, because now they're making this clear that actually that being in a female cabin doesn't mean she won't see a penis because (sighs) they take people at their word. So if you, if they hire, if this camp hires a counselor that identifies as female but is is has a penis they will put them in a female cabin if if they have a kid let te- they have teenagers i mean this camp goes up right. to what i think 18 
um, they have teenagers there. They've got 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds. If they identify as a gender, there is no questioning. There is no vetting whatsoever. No questions asked. You are in that cabin. Um, and just as a as a sex abuse litigator, I'm just seeing like yeah. I I and and as a litigator, I'm I'm a conservative person. So what I'm about to say is going to sound like the worst case scenario and like I'm being apocalyptic and I'm fear mongering. And that's probably right because I'm overly conservative when I advise my clients. But if I was the lawyer for this camp, I would say, wow, all of this information should be front and center. And in fact, you should have parents sign a waiver that says, I understand all of this going in. Mm -hmm. And I understand that I can't control the genitalia my child may or may not see. Um, and, And I would also say, do you have any concerns about juvenile rape right. do you have any concerns about adult t- uh touching molestation um rape of children do you have any concerns that a let's say a sex offender um as we see happens in prisons may come in with no vetting and and say that they identify as female and be paced, placed in a female cabin um i you know I, I think I would be asking all those questions of that camp. So I, I've been communicating with them. And I also, I, I communicated everything that my kid and her peer explained to me when they got home last summer. And I heard, no, of course, I heard nothing back. But I communicated all this again. And um, I what I was told is, yes, the bathrooms did have slats. Uh, they no longer do. They have um, now... Uh, revamped it all but there is an exception there is a curtain system in the pool shower house so in the pool showers there's still no gender specificity males and females are all showering together with curtains now we've all been in camp situations with curtains they don't close they don't close all the way no so they're all showering together these are children in adolescence their bodies are changing. They may be uncomfortable with their bodies. They have many of them, particularly the my littles, they have no experience with members of nude members of the opposite sex. Right. They just don't. And and they have no and I don't know that they should, but that's a different question. I mean, just throwing them into some environment like this, it just strikes me as absurd and insane and um so they're hoping to renovate the pool shower house they also said camper they acknowledge that campers and counselors change in the cabins that they change oh and there's no private dressing rooms they all just change in the cabins or in their sleeping bags so they're not all they're not shielded they totally admitted it they said they're not shielded from other campers and sometimes campers stand in a corner. I'm quoting from from an email I received. Sometimes campers stand in a corner away from other folks. Sometimes they do that. Um, every and, and even though they revamp their showers, every shower is slightly different. So sometimes in these shower facilities, there's no dedicated changing area. So you're stripping down outside of the shower. It's just I, I, I find this we, is a prompt. My mother went to this camp. Right. This camp has been around since the 40s. It's. I went to this camp. This is a generational Oregonian tradition camp. This is not some newfangled, it's not advertised as an LGBTQ camp either or a trans camp. Right. What I find so shocking is 
your kid is five years younger than my kid and my youngest. And this was like, she went to female, she went to sleepaway camp. She slept in a female cabin with a female counselor. Like this would never have happened. And Peter Bogosian just said this the other day on some little piece I saw, but it's like, we have changed like for decades or centuries this is how we have been. We've had, we've protected children and let them be children and not exposed to strangers' male penises if they're eight-year-old girls for decades and centuries. And in five years, we've turned the whole world upside down with like no study, no analysis, no expert discussion of like, what is this doing? What's the, what, why? Like, what harm exactly are we trying to avoid here? And what is the consequence to the vast majority of children who are not one of these things? And what, and yeah, I mean, I've known sex abuse survivors. The idea that a 17-year-old person with male genitalia would be in a cabin with my 12 or 14-year-old girl? No, I'm sorry. Just no, no. Like Well, that- and nobody knows where you don't know what kind of trauma your camper may have suffered. Right. Your camper may have been molested. Your camper may have been raped. Your teen camper may have been date raped. They may be engaged in some kind of PTSD or EMDR work. Um, You don't know where they're coming from and to to bury all this information in the handbook and then throw them into this kind of environment strikes me as wildly irresponsible. Right, right. Absolutely right. You could have a camper who was sexually abused and all of a sudden she shows up and she's in a what she thinks is a female cabin and the camper goes, the counselor goes to change and he's a male. I can't even imagine the harm to that child of, oh, now I'm stuck for a week in a cabin with. Uh, with an adult male stranger that or even a teen male stranger right like I don't do we not care about those kids anymore I don't but it's just it's such a in five years it is such a radical change I don't understand why the the people pushing this don't see that like making that kind of sort of unsupported not evidence-based radical change in how we are raising children is troubling and that we maybe shouldn't be moving quite so fast but it feels like this race to like outwoke each other like everybody is like how how woke can we get without any consideration of the potential harms of these truly radical policies radical in that they are so dramatically different from how we have raised children for decades or centuries I, i just it blows my mind this would never like i'm just Wow. So the email continues. Your camper may be in a cabin with a staff person, an adult, or a camper that has different sexual organs than your camper. A staff member might change in the cabin, but staff are not typically naked. This email, if if this email comes out in discovery, if there is litigation, this is exhibit A. Yeah. I would... I would highlight that for the jury. Staff are not typically naked in front of their counts in front of their campers. Not typically, and they acknowledge they have transgender staff. Um, they acknowledge. Uh, they say we don't have a strict policy saying staff can't change in their cabins while campers are present because, frankly, it's not always feasible. <sighs> I, I. I struggle with it because obviously what they're doing is they're trying to accommodate trans kids 
and trans adults who want to participate in community a community service oriented job where they're working with kids and I think that's great um, I'm one of those parents who uh, takes my kids to like drag queen story hour and stuff like that so I, I you know I think that's great but um, and I think trans kids should go to camp and, and so I guess my intellectual struggle with this is what do we do with them? Well, look, if you had a boy who identified as a girl, would you really feel comfortable putting that kid in an all-male cabin, particularly, and I, I, I think the subtext to that, and they didn't say this, but in my brain, I, I might have added, you know, particularly between the meanest ages, right? Yeah. Like between the ages of like, eight and 14 or mm-hmm. eight and 15 the where, where kids are missing like their entire prefrontal cortex and are caveman-y and and vicious to each other yeah and i i don't know right i don't really have an answer for that um i probably wouldn't feel comfortable doing that but i don't know i mean this is portland right um the rules are clear the the rules that are clear um on the front page of this camp and that nobody you'd have to be blind to miss are that if you engage in any kind of bigoted behavior or <laughs> or homophobic or transphobic behavior in any way you're gone so with that with that sort of barrier with that safekeeping measure in place, maybe I would feel comfortable. I mean, I don't know. If I had a trans kid in Portland, Oregon, I think I'd mostly feel okay. That it's not it's not we're not in Pendleton. We're right. not in we're not in Saudi Arabia. Right. Um we're sort of the opposite of all that. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the the argument that, hey, all this outrage about mixing genders and allowing everybody to see each other you know you're you're fear-mongering nobody who is a sex offender is going to pretend to be trans to go to camp you're that's a stupid fear and based on all of your white privileged outrage about this trans kids would never go to camp and so you're some kind of trans exclusionary feminist for this kind of uh rhetoric i mean i think i don't know it's like are most parents in portland okay with all of this i find that i guess my anecdotal experience is yes yeah my neighbors are sending their kids back it's just i it that i've sent i i forwarded them all these emails and they just don't i i i mean i think that there's a middle like everything it's about nuance and there's a middle ground like i think okay maybe the trans um girl counselor with the male genitalia can be the counselor why can't they i I don't this idea that we to me there's a difference between these are different issues is like whether trans people get to be with the people the gender with which they identify and whether we are just all naked in front of each other those are two different things i don't see why we can't have some reasonable privacy um even in a camp i don't it seems like you should be able to like not be naked in fr- i mean when is it okay for adults to be naked in front of children that now aren't their it is own? it's just that to me is not and now and and i think the implication is you're a bigot if you don't accept this because you're otherwise your attitude is going to keep trans kids from experiencing the wonders of sleepaway camp, the Jonathan Haidt recommendations of sleepaway camp. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously there's a, um, there's a there's a potential of having the trends. I mean, I think in, at my kids' level there would have been just a dorm that 
a cabin that was for trans kids. I get that's not okay because then you're excluding them from and the that's gender the criticism. that they want to be. That's exactly the criticism. Um, but I, there has to be some kind of balance. And I, I, I think, you know, it, it, and it may be age dependent, like an eight-year-old trans girl. Um, I maybe don't have so much issue about them being in the same room with cabin with, 100%. with gender girls. But I think once or, you or get- Or as an adult counselor. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's fraught, but I, I feel like it's, you know, like anything, there's harm on both sides and that the pendulum, we've, we've placed the pendulum way too far on, you know, the trans side of these things to the potential detriment of non-trans kids. It feels like the needs and the need to protect non-trans kids is now verboten. We don't care about we don't care about what they experience because they are that's right the they are the norm and so they are cis they are whatever it doesn't matter what they feel or what they need and I don't buy that I mean first of all like they're the majority and secondly all kids should have some level of protection you shouldn't have to feel like you should be able to 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 be able to say at any point in your life. You don't want to be naked in front of other people and you don't want to see other people naked. I I just, I mean, maybe that just makes me like super old and conservative, but like that's the way we've been for years. And there's something to that. And I, I mean, I think about a girl like having her first period at camp, gender neutral bathroom with the adolescents. Yeah. And like, you, you know, the boys are all like girls are in different stages, but then they're also like naked with boys. Like, and what that would do to your self-esteem about your body because somebody's boobs are bigger than these, I, I, maybe they don't care about that stuff anymore. I don't think, I think they still do. I, I just, I don't, I don't think that, it's like you're not even allowed to talk about the other side of the harm. And that I disagree with. I, I think we have to care about all kids. I think it's tricky because I, I really just don't want my 10-year-old sleeping in a cabin with people with penises who are strangers. That's it. Yeah, I, it's as simple as that. And I, I don't, that's not a bigoted attitude because that's not what you're coming. You're not saying there's anything wrong with the, with the trans girl counselor. You're saying you're coming from a place of protecting your child. And I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not bigoted. Like that's, and I think we often get tagged with, well, because we want to protect our own children, we're bigoted. I reject that. It's not bigoted. Bigoted would be saying, I don't, I hate trans people. That that would be bigoted. That's not what right, you're saying. Right. B- bigoted would be something like, well, trans, yeah, trans kids don't, they, they, they shouldn't be able to go to sleepaway camp. Right. That's just not for them. Right. And that, exactly. And that's not what you're saying. You're saying we need like reasonable, reasonable guidelines so that everybody feels safe and comfortable and not seeing or being exposed to things that they, that could potentially harm them. I mean, and again, it gets so hard to say because it's like if you say it, well, now you're saying all trans people are molesters, which is also not what you are saying. But that I can totally hear that criticism too. Like, oh, the like yeah, I object for sure. To I, I know, I I know that would be one of the criticisms. One of the number one criticisms is yeah. that that's it's it's playing into stereotypes. It's playing into tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I disagree with the right on many of those issues, like this new language where 
you know, we're calling people groomers. I completely object with that. I I think that falls into homophobic tropes. I do too. It's disgusting and nobody should say it. People that want to talk about trans rights are not groomers. I just still also don't think that that needs to be discussed in kindergarten. (laughs) Right, right. Nuance. (laughs) No, that's right. So do you still, are there pieces of the Democratic Party that you feel like you still identify with? Um, I'm for sure. Like I agree with, uh, I mean, to the extent that they support public education, it's not clear to me if they support public education or they just support teachers. I am a huge, still a very big supporter of public education. I think having a good public education system is absolutely key to lifting yourself out of poverty in this country. I don't think our public education system is very good, but it's still something that I strongly believe in. Um, I'm, I don't know that I'm a Medicare for all person, but I'm certainly um, in a single payer healthcare situation or something along those lines. I think everybody should be able to get healthcare. Everybody should have the healthcare that I have under my private employment plan. It's ridiculous that people can't get healthcare. Um, and I think our healthcare system is still massively broken and we should do something about that. And, you know, I think, I don't even know what their other sort of, I I don't know. I find it hard to like, I used to like Elizabeth Warren and now I, I, and now I I mean, I I think she's brilliant and I respected her as a bankruptcy lawyer and as a bankruptcy professor. And, but then we went through this closed school situation and millions of women lost their jobs and she was just silent the whole time. And so I don't really know what they actually believe. Yeah. The New York times did that piece that said, something like COVID has set the women's movement back to the seventies or something like that in mm-hmm. terms of working women. And where was she? Absolutely silent. Yeah, she was completely silent. Yeah. It was so. really, really um, disturbing. And frankly, Hillary was too. All of them, like all of sort of my female my heroes, heroes yeah. on the democratic side. Um, there's one woman, what's the woman? Oh, she's a representative in California. Uh, fairly liberal, I'm going to blank on her name, Katie Porter, I think. Is that her? Anyway, she did come out and say one thing about closed schools, but generally, and so, again, that's where I come back to, like, it has to be the union money. How else can you explain their complete abandonment of what they claim to be their principles? Um, how, how do you feel about Portland right now? Um, I have not given up hope on Portland. I I truly like love this city. I mean, I'll be honest. My husband wants to move out like yesterday. And, oh, really? Mm-hmm, why? Why is that? Just the taxes, the condition, and I mean, we live on the central east side. Um, we have homeless people and trash and graffiti everywhere. Um, it actually, like, we went to Phoenix for the weekend a few in early April, and we came back, and it was like it it hit us both that like there is a mental health component to living the way we live in Portland. You're living with and within all these people's trauma. Yeah. I mean, I counted eight. I live three miles from my office. On the day we came back, I'm like, I'm going to count how many homeless encampments I drive by to go to work. And it's eight. 
eight in three miles. Like, and those are encampments, so that that means numerous numerous tents. tents. Right? There's like there some of them are gone. The city is doing a better job, but there was a big one at Thirty Third and Sandy, where we you know close to where we live. And then there's a few on Sandy as you go down. And then well, and some doing downtown. a better job just means. Wheelers ordering that they be cleaned up, but they're just moving across the street. Or, or they come right back, like Laurelhurst Park. They clean it. I mean, they've cleaned it. Got. I mean, I appreciate the city doing this. They've cleaned it however many times. They're back, like, honestly, within, like, three days. Like, if we don't get some mitigation measure down that prevents them from coming back, it's – and it's – it's open drug deals in the street. There's kids walking home from school that get accosted by these people. I mean, it is just, it's no way to live. And we have to get, and the graffiti is also like really, really, really bad. Yeah. I mean, it's everywhere. When we travel, my kids uh, comment about how our city has the most graffiti, graffiti of any city that, and they've been to a fair amount of cities, of any city that they've been to. Yeah, it's, it's. When know. we were in Chicago, they asked the taxi driver where the tents were. <laughs> and it's not necessary my daughter my oldest goes to school in boston now because she's a college freshman and boston is blue as can be and they don't have any tents people it's but wouldn't people say that's because they have bad weather i i don't i know i think it's because they don't have the boise decision so i mean you're only stuck with the boise decision if you live in the ninth circuit and other cities just don't tolerate it although according to wheeler we have plenty of shelter space it's it's a it's a wheeler won't say this but the implication is it's a problem of service resistance so it, you know when when they cleared the laurelhurst camps and they reported on it a quarter of the people went into shelter and everybody else declined I'm sorry, don't you? Joanne Hardesty says that service resistance is an oxymoron. No one is service resistant. So let, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I'm being facetious. I, no, I know. But, she yeah. said that at a debate, right? She said that at the, the Laurelhurst. Did you hear her? I was there. Yeah. The Laurel. It was my question. The Laurelhurst Neighborhood Association hosted the three of them, and we could submit questions in advance. And my question was, I drive by eight homeless camps on my way to work every day. This is unlivable. What do we do about service-resistant people? And her, like... Verbatim, she said, service resistance is an oxymoron. There are no people who are service resistant. And it was like, anyone who was voting for her at that point should, that's insane. Like, everybody knows there's service resistant people. That's, I mean, when I worked in juvenile court 25 years ago, there were service resistant people. Like, we talked about these people are service resistant. It is a thing. And it's it's crazy to say that, it's just crazy to say that there aren't. It's nonsense you if, if you can't accept that there are service resistant people you will never solve the problem ever what makes you say i mean i think like i don't know to quote the was that portlandia like the dream of portland like i loved this city in uh so i've been here since 1995 um and I loved this city in the late 90s and the early 2000s. I mean, it was beautiful. The people were cool. We had great food. We were things to do. I mean, it was, and for most of my kids' lives, it was a great place to raise kids. Um, I liked our K-8 school. I think my kids got a good education there. Um, and I just sort of keep dreaming that that's, that it's possible to get back there, which is probably as naive as my position on opening schools, <laughs> but that's well, it. I, I don't know. I, you I just, got schools open. I just, I, I'm not willing to give up on the fact that we can be back there or close to back there. Would you ever vote Republican? Yes. But I, that, under what circumstances? 
Um, I would vote for Christine Drazen if I thought it meant Tina Kotek won't be the governor for sure. And it, I think it, I would too. If you had said that to me a year ago, I, would I know have my said head would have crazy. exploded. Yeah. I agree. And that I, I would vote for someone who's anti-choice. I mean, I am so pro-choice, but it's like, well, it's never going away in Oregon. So what I really need to do is vote for, I don't know. Has she really said that she's anti-choice? I think so. I was just on a, like our reopening, you know, we have a kind of a statewide reopening schools group and we have this huge text chain and there's, it's fun because it's what America should be. We have like right wing Trump lovers and we have like me and Renee, like it's just such a spectrum of political, but we all like we exchange, we have dialogue. We don't hate each other, like because we know each other and we're like, the Trump guy gets crazy and we're like, oh, come on, stop that. But um, anyway, the people, the Republicans on that, text chain or yes yes she's she is pro pro life but i don't think she makes it like a huge part of her platform because she's trying to run as a moderate which is smart i think if i mean the republicans the only way they're going to get into the governor's mansion is to run as moderate and i still don't know that they can do that because the registration advantage is just so against them but yeah i mean betsy's my candidate but um i love her i think she'd be amazing for oregon but i will vote for whoever has the best chance of beating tina kotek did you attend any of the George Floyd protests here in Portland? I did. Um, yes, I went to a couple. Uh, I went to some early up on in nor- like a, like northeast Portland, um, and I marched in one with my kids. And my kids went to a bunch of them. So I mean, they were they probably marched five to seven times in fact that famous picture of the burnside bridge with all the people laying on it yeah that was the one damian lillard was at i think yeah my daughter is in the picture and i bought like you could buy it from the artist or the photographer and i bought it and she has a big picture of it hanging in her bedroom (laughs) so yeah i mean i not i mean the the pro the peaceful part like not the stuff at night where it got we were like you have to come home by this time and you can't go anywhere near the justice center those were our rules but she was you know 17 at the time so I feel like Portland is kind of divided about whether and maybe this is wrong maybe there is a majority opinion on this and I you know we don't have data so I don't know but I anecdotally it seems divided on whether the building burning and the looting was good for the the movement against police brutality and one of the opinions that has been expressed here by a guest named Lionel Irving, who's now on the new revamped gun violence reduction team, is called the FIT team. He says that without that kind of property destruction, we wouldn't have had the movement against police brutality that we did in 2020. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I don't. I don't, I reject that. I think that Portlanders were like everyone in the nation, absolutely devastated by what happened to George Floyd, by watching it, by hearing it. And that the, the protests themselves, the peaceful protests were like nothing we'd ever seen in this city. Like my kids were one of, they marched on I-84 when they closed that. They didn't know that they were going to do that but they were on the freeway. Like that was crazy that they were able to pull that off. Like those were massive protests and there was big support among all Portlanders. And I don't think that taking the extra step of 
you know, almost destroying our federal courthouse. It just broke my heart what they did to the federal courthouse. Um, and the Justice Center moved that needle any more than it had already moved. I, I don't think that that's true. If, if anything, I think those things were harmful and have, like, pushed back against the ideas of, you know, which, and I don't agree with defund the police, but if you do, I think it it was counterproductive because it was like, well, we need more police officers if they have to stand down here every night and get crap thrown at them and while people try to burn down our public buildings or just destroy them or whatever they tried to do. So, yeah. It, we have a lot of law student listeners and listeners who are young lawyers or newbie lawyers or people looking for jobs. If you could go to law school again, would you do that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, probably just because I don't know what else I would do. <laughs> and what, so if you could rewind back to college, would you, do you, do you think then that you would engage in some kind of existential Socratic method with yourself about what else you, it is that you could do? Yes. I mean, knowing what I know now, yes, I would go back to college and try to figure out like what else I could do that would be a fulfilling career and fit my skill set that doesn't have, that, that isn't being a lawyer. Say more about knowing what I know now. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I always joke that I tell my kids not to be lawyers, but I don't need to. Like they've watched me be a trial lawyer for 20 years. And I, and I, as we talked before we got on, I don't even go to trial that much, but it's just, it's very stressful. Um, and being a litigator and having sort of a life of conflict, at least eight hours or more a day, every day is, I don't think particularly healthy. Um, and yeah, and I'm really lucky. I've been at my firm my whole career. I love my firm. I love my partners, all of that. Um, I've been lucky to be successful, but, um, it's a hard, it's a hard job. It takes a lot out of you. And I worry like about my long-term, like what does, now that we know more about stress and inflammation and all that stuff, I worry about like, what is, what is my job done to my long-term health? But then you also kind of get like the golden handcuffs and it's hard to leave, especially when you have kids that you have to put through college. (laughs) So, yeah. And by that, you mean just sort of the trappings of the financial benefits that you do get yeah, I mean, you you can if you're successful as a lawyer, you make a good living. And right now, I have a child who's a freshman in college. I have another who's about ready to be a junior in high school, and so I don't feel like I could be I could do what I need and want to do for them, um, doing another job. But like once my youngest gets through college, I would perhaps look at some other thing to do. For- oh, you would you like if you like would you do it again? Would you? Um, I, I would, I, I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was eight and I wrote that in my journal when I was eight and, um, it's, it worked out really well for me. I think the frustration for me, it's, it's been a good combination of luck and hard work. I think the frustration is, um, with COVID, particularly in Portland and the way that, most of the city seems like it's sort of had this shit scared out of them that we're all going to end up on ventilators. The court closures have really affected my quality of life. I don't feel like I'm connecting with people except for my clients when I'm litigating anymore. Opposing counsel doesn't want to go to breakfast. They don't want to go to coffee. 
Um, there are some that are start that's starting to trickle in more and more, but I think people are just becoming more comfortable in front of a screen. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we've become a whole city of introverts where we're like afraid to go be in person with people. Like it makes people very anxious to be in person. Yeah. I always found things like connecting with opposing counsel, no matter how, how many problems I, I think their case might have. I, I, and in, even if I didn't particularly like them personally, I, I always liked sitting down with them and just hearing more about who they were because it helped me personalize them. It helped me. I, this um, Our community is very small, and it, it helped me get to just get to know them better as, as, a, as a person. And in a lot of ways, it led to almost 99.9% of the time, it led to more favorable outcomes for my clients. Yeah. Because I think the other side also saw that I was a human and I could humanize my clients face-to-face when I was with them and I could talk about personal aspects of them that I knew that they would identify with. Um, and just putting a personal touch on it, I think really helped take the vitriol out of conversations over email or text where you can't tell tone or even the phone where you can't see their face. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. And so I miss that. And I, I miss, I miss connecting with judges. Um, I miss looking into their face and looking into their eyes and I miss connecting with, um, jurors. Yeah. Yeah. And so my, my, the quality of my work life has substantially declined in the last two years. And yeah. it's be- become very dissatisfying because those are those are the things I liked. I, d- I don't like I don't like writing nasty letters. Mm-hmm. I don't like writing um, emails about setting up a, a telephone call to meet and confer about 20 issues. That's, yeah. uh, none of that ever interested me. What right. always interested me in the legal profession was the human element of mm-hmm. the stories and what persuades and what doesn't persuade and the intellectual challenges of those kinds of things. Um, but I was only happy if the intellectual challenge of briefing and arguing was accompanied with some kind of human interaction, which I'm not really getting anymore. Yeah, I, I totally agree the, the what I love about being a litigator is the people, like just getting to know different people and seeing their lives. And I think that... Um, that I also, I don't know if y'all been interested to know if you've seen this, I feel like too in Portland that like our sort of COVID craziness and the effect that that has had on people's mental health is that like people are just less reasonable and they're like more, yeah, I have seen that. they're more like stuck in whatever outcome that they want. And they're all just sort of siloed. Yeah. And it's just like, I, I, like I'm having a harder time getting cases settled that I feel like I should get settled. I hate zoom mediation. I think it's a disaster. It's like, you don't connect with any same thing as you're talking about. Like I cannot connect with the mediator and to have the mediator understand who my client is over a zoom. Um, I've also had like cases where like the other side, like when the mediator goes back to talk to them, they're just like not at their camera. And so we have this big delay cause they've gone off to do something else, which you would never do in an in-person mediation. Cause like, you're right there, like, you know, all of those things. So I totally agree. And I wonder whether like I'll have be scheduling a deposition and everybody's in Portland and they'll be like, should we do zoom? I'm like, no, <laughs> like, no, we, why would we do zoom? Like we're all here and we're all vaccinated and are we going to do this forever? But like you said, I think people just have become more comfortable with it. And I, yeah, I don't know. I'm interesting to see if we ever, what parts of it we ever get back. Like, are we going to do in-person hearings again? Or are we just always going to be on WebEx? Cause I don't, 
enjoy WebEx. I want to look at the judge in the face and like connect with them. You can't read their eyes over. You can't tell if they're like, I got it. Stop talking. Right. Shut that's up. Right. right? <laughs> you can't. And get you that. need all those nonverbals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just even if they're on Zoom, you can't see them the same way that you can in person or their body language. Are they like looking like, OK, I got, you know, or I'm interested in that. What did you just say? Like all of that stuff. I I feel like I'm practicing like with one hand behind my back. That's how I feel about doing stuff. On Zoom. I get all these questions about why Amber Heard looks to the side and doesn't look into the into the television cameras. And I'm like, because the television camera operator is not making a decision about Amber Heard's future. Yes. The jurors are. Yes. And those are the decision makers. And those are the people that you need to connect to. Um, so you, do you have two kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two girls. So I also get a lot of questions and this is another, I think this is another intellectual puzzle. I also get a lot of questions about what it's like to be, Oh, somebody in a very demanding professional job and a mom and um, particularly now um, that parenting is, has become so intense. I mean, there are so many theories about how to do it right or how to do it wrong. And I think kids are, it's almost like we're curating these children for college applications. Do you have any thoughts on um, whether you feel like it's been hard to, has it been hard for you to juggle all that? For sure. I mean, it's absolutely hard to be a working parent. My husband at least has a nine to five job that's helped. So like when I'm in trial or when I'm, I know that like he is always there, like always there. I don't know, like single moms, I have no idea how they do it. Like they are heroes. Um, so yeah, it's been hard. My mom worked, I mean, my parents were divorced. My mom worked my whole life. Um, and so that was a model for me. Um, and I, I, I try not to jump into that sort of like helicopter parenting world. I mostly reject that. In fact, Barry Weiss, I just started listening to it. Like this week, she has three parenting people on with a debate about parenting. And one of them is an economist. And he's like, all the studies show that like, and they use adoptees and twins, that like none of that stuff matters. Like, you can't move the needle enough with various parenting theories about whether you should be a gentle parent or a, you know, I kind of reject all of that. But yeah, I mean, especially now that my kids are older, like I look back and think, you know, I wish I had been around more. I, I worked at a firm that really does support work-life balance. So I'm, that made a huge difference. Our billable hour goal is reasonable. Um, when I had my first child, I said, I want to work at home one day a week. And they were like, okay. And nobody had ever done it. They were like, meet your client needs, meet your billable goal. Fine. Don't care. And so I worked at home. It's funny now. Cause I like hate remote work post pandemic, but, um, I worked at home one day a week for 19 years. Um, and it was hard. Those were the hardest days, but I could, I got to pick them up from school that day. And I would like clock off at three o'clock and we would do something. And those little things made a huge um, difference, but it's hard and the society doesn't really fully support, you know, working moms, but I, you know, my kids are knock on wood, seemingly successful and very independent. So in that way, I feel like to the extent I had anything to do with it, I did. Okay. (laughs) Do do you have any advice for people who, um, want to become parents, but are worried about how to, how to juggle all that? I mean, I would say it's not a, 
balance, it's uh, a teeter-totter. So like, and I don't know if you feel the same way. Some days I'm like doing great at work and the parenting piece is a little shaky and other times I totally. feel like I'm rocking the parenting and the work is shaky and it just goes back and forth. Like balance is not a thing that you get. It's like, oh, I've got these parenting demands right now and I need to go do that. Um, and now I'm taking care of an elderly parent. So now I have the sandwich generation and the, that demand. Um, and you just do the best you, you know, you just do the best you can and try not to be so hard on yourself. I think, and this guy that was on with Barry was saying this, like this idea that somehow you have this outsized impact on who your kid becomes is kind of not true. And if we let, like, let that go a little bit, like feed them, teach them the important values of you, who you are, hard work, honesty, like basic core values and give them opportunities. But like, you are not, you know, you're not curating them. You might think you are, but you're really not like, that's, there's really no empirical evidence to suggest that these various hands-on parenting models, you know, work. Um, and I think this idea, this new idea that like we never tell our kids no is insane and don't do that. That would be just my advice from listening to teachers because they don't all hate me. Um, the concept of like what they are seeing in young grades from this parenting idea of like we never say no, these kids are not prepared for school like it's your job are to they collecting data on that I don't know that's a good question but like they're just a behavioral mess and plus COVID on top of that they didn't have school environment but there no exists in the world like when you go to have a job there are things you're allowed to do and not allowed to do why in the world would we like not teach our kids from day one like these things are acceptable and these things are not acceptable how else are they supposed to learn that if not from us so this idea that you're going to harm your kid by like telling them no or disciplining them, I'm not saying physical discipline, I'm saying discipline, is life has consequences. And if you're not teaching them that from day one, you're just setting them up for disappointment and failure, I think. Do you, do you think, Renee talked, when he came in here, he talked about a silent majority in Portland. He felt like there were a lot of people that weren't speaking up, but that they don't believe that Portland's fine. I, th I do think that there's an overarching narrative in the media and generally, I mean, you referred to there is a culture of quote unquote Portland nice, although you don't think it's nice. I would, I agree with that. I, I think that a lot of those people aren't, are they're kind of putting a face on this, these livability issues is where everything's great. People are fear mongering. And, and Renee's theory was kind of there, there actually is a silent majority it's not just Kim McGear and Renee Gonzalez and Kristen Olson who think that Portland is troubled. Um, I, I, I'm starting, I believed that, but I'm starting to wonder based on the number of people who voted for Joanne Hardesty, who is a incumbent who has, has sort of championed a lot of the policies that I think have led to the current state of Portland, Oregon. And um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. I do think that there's a I do think there's a silent majority that's not happy with the homelessness and the crime for sure. Um, I don't I, I have no answer for why they didn't vote. I mean, I, it, at one level, right, 50 percent or 60 percent of people voted for somebody other than Joanne. So that's good. That's a good sign for the general election. Right. And um, 
But I think we have, I mean, I do think we need open primaries. I think the largest voting block now is unaffiliated voters because of the motor voter. Yeah, the data supports yeah. that. And so I can see that if you got a ballot that didn't have anybody from the governor's race on it, had no ballot measures, had no none of the things that we think of as voting, and had 12 city council people running for city council, that you might put that in the recycling bin. Like, am I supposed to figure? And I, I think voting is a civic duty. I like agree with like Australia, where it's where, like the law is that you vote. But, um, but I can totally see how people are like, I, am I supposed to research all twelve of these people? And okay, I read the voters pamphlet, but what else? Willamette Week didn't cover. The Oregonian didn't cover all twelve. They only covered a few. So I can see why people didn't vote. I don't agree with it, but you know, I think that. Um, I, I mean, I understand that. I think we will see more in the general when you only have to pick between Joanne and thankfully, hopefully Renee. Um, I think we'll see a better, I'll think we'll see more, but I think too, like the Dan Ryan race is, I mean, I didn't want AJ McCreary. She's insane, but, um, I shouldn't say she's insane. She's not good for Portland. I strongly object to every policy position that she has, but, um, you know, that other people didn't get any enough run to at least make him go into a runoff against Stephen Cox or, or Sandy Bali is distressing. I mean, and I feel the same way about Tina Kotek. I mean, I think I tweeted, if you look around and your answer is, I want more of the same, like, who, like, who are these people? You should find one and have one of them on. I would listen. I would love to hear from somebody that, like, thinks that Tina Kotek is the answer for Oregon in the next four years. Like, Why? What, what pot, I mean, I guess she's done what minimum wage and, you know, I guess if you believe that the tenant protections that they've enshrined in state law now are good for Oregon, maybe those things, but I just overall as a state, like how can we have the worst rated, the most, the least popular governor in the nation, and then a majority of Democrats vote for somebody who is identical to her in terms of policy, like are, are different people answering the polls or, than or to the left or potentially to the left yeah. in terms of, in terms of policy. True. I just, it, I found, I find it confounding. So I, I think it's, you know, there's a little bit of tribalism that's, you know, and we were, I guess I would say like, I was probably part of that tribalism until the last year. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I voted, I voted straight Kate blue. Brown. I never voted for, I, I I will say I was poised to do, for the first time in my life, vote Republican and vote against Kate Brown in the Newt Bueller race. And my issue was he came out for vaccine exemptions. And I just thought that was wildly irresponsible for a doctor, um, somebody who'd been to medical school and who clearly has the education and the should have the intellectual capacity um, to understand how dangerous that would be. And it was also at a time when there was this bizarre groundswell of parents who were terrified to inoculate their children against smallpox and, and whooping cough. And we were starting, I mean, my pediatrician would talk about it all the time. We were seeing all these things coming back. Right. Um, in part because of that discredited, I think it was the Lancet article that was ultimately discredited, um, from the researcher who said that vaccines could lead to autism. I mean, right. that was the fundamental issue. Um, and then they wanted like them to be spaced out and, and Newt Bueller was just sort of, I don't know if he thought, well, this is my base and I need to cater to them. That's my only explanation because 
people I know who know him say he's a great guy. He's a smart guy. I, that's the only conclusion I can come to, but I, it caused me not to vote for him. Well, and I think he embraced Trump at the end too. And that was probably, oh, did from, he? yeah, that was a problem for me. I thought about him too, but that, those that would have been an issue. for So me I think as well. he ran to the base and I don't, I never understand that. It's like, you really need to win the center no matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, maybe not a Democrat in the state, but I mean, who else are they going to, if you love Trump, what are you going to vote for Kate Brown? I guess they were worried that they just wouldn't vote at all. I suppose that's why people from the right run to the base is to get the vote out. But um, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there is a silent majority, but I worry that they don't care enough to do anything. I guess that's what I feel. I don't, I mean, there's not enough people speaking out like people for Portland, boy, they've gotten a lot of like traction. They've written like, their vote, their email campaigns generate a lot of people, but it's still like, it's not enough. I think most people seem unfortunately happy to sort of like sit in their little bubble and hope that somebody else takes care of it. What would your tipping point be for that, that would compel you to leave Portland? I mean, I think what would push you over the edge? I mean, I think for me, I've got a high school sophomore, so we're not going anywhere for two years. And to me, it's like, where is Portland when that? when I, when I really would have a choice to move. I think if we haven't changed at all, then like, if it's still like it is now, then I would move. And I think that if, like, if we pass more of what I think are unfair taxes, where we only tax a tiny percentage of the population, like if they've, there've been moves about talking about another such tax, like the preschool tax, and I totally support preschool for all. But if it's preschool for all, then everybody should pay for it. Having 8% of the population pay for a public good is a terrible slippery slope that leads to emptying cities because people are not going to continue to live here and pay those kind of taxes. They'll just go to Lake Oswego where you don't have to pay them. And so I think I, you know, if another one of those gets passed, then that would also probably be a tipping point for us because it's just, it's not what I believe. I, I public good should be paid for all the public. You're still going to have the highest income paying most of it, but everybody should pay some of it. And what stops us from like, I mean, that's such a slippery slope. Why would we ever have a tax that anybody other than the top 8% pays when the 92%, you know, are going to vote for a tax that they don't have to pay? I think most people would say we shouldn't. Yeah. Cause they don't fall into that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think, I think they would say, yeah, every, everybody who makes 200,000 and over should pay all the taxes. Yeah. And I, they can afford to, and I don't want to live. I mean, I part of there's two things that what I think would be the tipping point for me. I don't want to live with people who think that way. And I don't want to live like I do get to this point, like looking at the election results, like I was kind of depressed on Tuesday night and thinking like, I don't want to live with these people anymore. Like, I don't want to live with people who think that Tina Kotek should be the governor. Like she's so, it's so wrong in my view. And I don't, I need to live. I mean, uh, it's not Andrew Sullivan. Who was it? Oh, I mean, Akir, I always say his name wrong, but Emil, the Yale law professor, the constitutional law guy, that's amazing. He was talking about how Americans are sorting themselves out into red and blue states. And I'm like, maybe I, I don't think that's a good idea, but maybe that's where I am. I'll link to the podcast. Okay. He's pro-choice, but he believes that Roe was wrongly decided. He was on Barry Weiss's podcast. Yeah, he was. And um, he was on with, uh, he wrote, he just wrote a piece in the um, Wall Street Journal as well. He believes Roe was wrongly decided and he 
believes that even though uh, women will suffer and and families, frankly, and Americans will suffer when the right to abortion is given to the states to figure out, um, he believes, I mean, he's very pragmatic about it and just very intellectual about it. And, and I couldn't disagree with him. I mean, mm-hmm. what he said is legal. Like he was like, I, I think he kept saying I'm burdened by the fact that I have a law school education. Yeah. And he was like, look, the, the, role of the Supreme Court is to determine what is and is not constitutional, period. Right. That's their role. Mm-hmm. There is no right in the Constitution to abortion. abortion. And so we're done. And the book gets closed. And we don't go into whether women are going to be hurt by that. We right. don't go into the policy implications because that's not our job. That is the job of the policymakers or the legislature. Yeah. And they tried and they didn't have enough votes. And he said, I was disheartened by that. I was upset by that. That's not the outcome that I wanted. And 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 speaking just from a policy perspective, I don't think it's a good thing that it's being devolved to the states, but constitutionally, yeah, I it's not in there. I mean, he was like, "Look, I'm I'm also for gun control, but I also believe that it's in there that you got to have a gun." Right. So, um he was just being very it was interesting because he was just being very intellectually honest um about that and he did say that he thinks maybe people will continue to migrate to um and and silo themselves off in yeah. in particular states and he thought that was a good thing. Which I don't know how I feel about it but I thought, you know, I thought it was really interesting and it's definitely happening. People, I mean, I know so many people that moved, you know, during COVID to a place that had policies. Would that you they move out with. of Oregon? I mean, I'm burdened by elderly parents that are here, so not at, not currently. Maybe Washington. Maybe up to, you know, like live in Vancouver Which really isn't that different. Canada. Right. Yeah. Although like east side Washington, at least the people that you're actually around are you're gonna be or east side of like Vancouver tends to be a little more conservative. I mean, they have Republican, you know, they've they've elected what's her name. Um, Is it odd for you to hear yourself saying this? You you just said I might move somewhere where people are more conservative because they elect Republicans. I know, it's crazy. Yeah, it is odd. And I just I think and I just try to tell myself that like I haven't moved. It's not me. It's it's them. And that uh and the the left has just run so far left, you know, just talking about your camp thing that I still can't stop thinking about. Um and so I think um that's what I tell myself that it's not you know, it's not me. I suppose some of it's me just age and all of those things, but I don't, I just feel like the left has left me as opposed to I have, you know, left them. What's and, your biggest issue with Kotek? I mean, I just, I don't think that she's, A, I just don't think she has like the leadership skills. I think she's divisive. Um, I mean, I really don't, she has no desire to bring Oregon together and work towards common goals. I mean, she had that deal with Drazen that she just like walked out on her. I mean, I read the Willamette Week piece and I was like, I don't want to vote for this person. Just tell me about that. I actually don't know about that. Like she agreed with Drazen that the Republicans would have some input into redistricting. And she just completely went back on her word. Like just was like, yeah, I don't feel like that anymore. And I'm sure she got like pressure from her house. But, and then I don't really understand like, I think that there's so much hypocrisy, like, okay, we're all about equity, at least shoving it down to everybody else. But then when, when we're going to pick a new speaker, 
I mean, I love um, Representative Bynum out of like Happy Valley, right? She's a black woman from a relatively moderate conservative district. I've seen her speak. She's impressive. And they make the leader some white guy out of Corvallis, like, or where Benton County, wherever he is. It's like, well, how is that? I don't understand like equity for thee, but not for me. I don't, I'm just like, I don't understand. To me, that seems apocryphal. Like, why are you, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, or hypocritical is the right word. So, uh, yeah, all those things. And I, her policies, I mean, she's running on like, I'm, you know, I'm a lesbian and I'm this and I'm pro-choice. And it's like, those aren't the issues facing Oregon. Like we're always going to be pro-choice and I'm glad that you're a lesbian, but like that doesn't help. What does that do for Oregon? Like, what are we, and, and she's been the speaker for 10 years and look at Portland. It's the shining star of Oregon and it's a mess. So to say that she doesn't have any responsibility for where this state is and where this city is, I think is wrong. And where was she on opening schools? Again, like totally bought and paid for by the union. I can't tell you how many emails I sent to Tina Kotek directly about, Did you like, ever receive you? a response? Never. Not one. Not one time did she. Not even automated response. Same thing with my own representative. I'm represented by Con Fam. I sent her so many emails. I called her office absolute silence. Like they don't care about, they want to run this state for a very small segment of extremely left people. And they don't care about this like state population, the 3 million people who live here and what is best for them. And I want somebody that, I mean, I like Betsy, like take the best from the right and the best from the left. And let's have some common sense centrist policies that move Oregon forward. And, you know, also like, why don't we have paid family leave yet? Like, where have she been? Like, she's, she's in this role, like she could be criticizing Kate Brown. They passed that in 2019. I mean, I represent employers, we maybe don't love it, but it's a necessary policy. Why in the world can't you roll it out in less than three years? And it's radically popular. And I think it would be overwhelmingly popular in this state. We just need like a drastic like this group of Democrats has been running the state for 30 years and we are not getting, we're not in a better place. We need like a drastic change in leadership, like a complete cleaning house of, you know, all of these agencies that don't, that like we spend a ton of money on these agencies and what do they do? Like OHA has some like $30 billion budget or something insane. Like what do they do with that? Like where's that oversight? Why is the unemployment system still so bad? Like you've been in charge for so long and all we've done is go down. So I don't see why you get to continue to be in charge. I feel like someone else should be in charge. So if Kotak is running from the far left, which I think she is, and if she's ultimately elected, which I think she very well could be, I think one question we're going to have to ask ourselves is whether that means that this is Oregon, that Oregon is that far left, um, or does it mean that that the silent majority still exists, but it's just not, they're just not motivated to vote. And I think the Oregonian or somebody came out with some kind of armchair psychology about why the voter turnout in this last primary was so low and their theory was that there was a sense of hopelessness. Mm. I could, yeah, I can see that. I think to me, those are the same thing though, right? Like either way, it means this is the Oregon that most Oregonians want to have, whether by actively well, voting yeah. for Tina or failing to do anything. Either way, you're choosing to stay with this Oregon. 
and the majority of people would be choosing to stay with this Oregon. And I, I don't want to stay with this Oregon. So I don't know what that means in terms of, you know, leaving. What do, what do people do if they want to counteract this capture of Oregon politicians by far left groups? And I would characterize the teachers union as a very far left group. They yeah. endorsed AJ McCreary. They endorsed Joanne Harsey. I would, um, Katina Kotek, I would a million percent. Um, the, these are politicians who, if they, I think if they were in any other state, save maybe Washington or California wouldn't be elected dog catcher in my opinion. But th- those people are the ones being championed by the teachers unions. And, and they are, I, I would dare say probably the most powerful group in the state of Oregon for people who are interested in keeping schools open and, um, in seeing crime dealt with on a pragmatic level, et cetera. What do, what do they do? I mean, there are plenty of moneyed people like that out there. I mean, Phil, Phil Knight's one of them. He's giving a lot of money to Betsy Johnson. I know, but obviously there, the money needs to be pooled together. Do parents need to form their own pack or Mm -hmm. union? Yeah. Have you thought about that? Have you talked to anybody about this? I mean, we've, Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it. So Stan Pulliam's wife is trying to do something along these grounds. She called it's called the Moms Union. Um, You can find them online. Um, And they're 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 because she's Stan Pulliam's wife. I mean, they're probably a little bit right further right than I would normally be. Like they're on, they're kind of into this CRT stuff, and I don't, I haven't, I'm not educated enough to form a really strong opinion about that issue. And what's actually being taught? And are they like Chris Rufo devotees? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I mean they're they were joining us a little late, but they came into joining us on the school reopening issue, and they've been good. And they, I think they have some funding, which is nice, so they can have like some paid staff. They're doing really grassroots stuff, which is cool. They have like school captains, and then they're doing like parent training sessions on how to advocate for reasonable policies in education. So I think that they're, and I don't think, I don't know if they're a pack that they can actually give money to candidates, but yeah, I think having a parent pack, the problem is being a parent is transitory, right? Like you're only a parent for so long. And so having a consistent pack is hard because people, it's the same reason like you give money to your school's foundation forever these years, and then you never give money to them again. And so I think that makes it hard for parents to organize is the fact that you're like, once your kids are grown, you're, I think I'll still care about these things, but I'll probably care about them a little bit less. So maybe it needs to be like a pragmatic pack or mm-hmm. a, a team, reality. a rational pack, a team, <laughs> right. A hashtag team reality PAC, mm-hmm. um, for data driven and, and, a, responses and accountability for money and transparency about where money is going, et cetera. I mean, you could, you could do a whole bullet point list, of course. Yeah. Um, but that I I've been, this is another intellectual challenge Mm -hmm. for me and I've been sitting on it for a long time and that's really the only answer I can come up with. If, and if anybody has any other ideas, please, please DM me and I'm, I'd love to hear all your ideas or, or tag me in a Twitter rational in PDX on Twitter. 
let us let us know what you think should be done. But that that is the only way I can see um, creating a space for those voices because mm-hmm. o- otherwise there there isn't one. Yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, to find yeah, some- it's got to be money driven because, like you said, if 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 these um, impulses that are not based on data or metrics are being shoved down our throats because of money, we can only counteract that with money. Money, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it does have to be broader than parents, but yeah, if you found this sort of, you know, yeah, centrist pack, team reality pack, whatever you want to call it, and then try to raise money to support centrist candidates. I think, um, it, I agree. I mean, I've always said that, you know, Votes have to matter more than money to change the system. And we're not there yet because not enough people vote. So maybe we need money instead of, you know, the only way. I and mean, it's a great point that you make. The only way to counteract the money is with money. Um, although, you know, there are people like Kirk Flynn didn't win and he had like $11 million behind him. So it's like money matters. It's, it's a, I, w- I don't know. I would love to read something from people who really understand this is exactly what, obviously money matters, but it's also not everything. It's like somewhere in the middle. Like you have to, oh I yeah. Think- well, there was that trucker that did it. I was talking mm-hmm. to Stephen Cox about this cause he was expressing some frustration, understandable frustration about not being as well funded as like an AJ McCreary, certainly as Dan Ryan, but even as like an AJ McCreary not being endorsed by teachers unions. Cause he was pro, even though he doesn't have kids, he was, he's a gay, gay man without children, but he was pro opening schools and, um, so he was not, I mean, I, he wasn't even given a look by the big interests in Oregon and I, he was expressing frustration. And I said, well, you could be like that trucker that did a, a iPhone video and won. he spent like a hundred dollars. Yeah. So I, it must be a combination. Like you said, it must be a combination of things. And it would be great if anybody, if there are any experts out there, it would be great if you would DM me or just let us know what, what does the data show, um, about who gets elected, who is electable and, um, how do we put that to good use to change things in Oregon? I think is the big question. Yeah. I think it's, and can we change them? I mean, Mm -hmm. for me, a big intellectual question is, can we change them? Because if we can't, I'm going to hang it up. I don't need, like, I don't need this expensive, time-consuming hobby of podcasting (laughs) about issues that are fringy and minority and nobody wants to hear about and nobody wants. I don't need that. I I can, I'll, fine, you know, I'll just, um, I'll do something else with my time and I'll, I'll just accept where, where we're, where we're at, because if that's where we're at, then that's where we're at. And I just need to move on to acceptance and forget about championing a Renee or a Steven or a, you know, or a Terry pre Grigsby for Metro and I'll hang it up. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I would, it would be interesting to hear. I'd also be really interested to hear from like an expert, like one of the polling guys or whoever political strategist in Portland about, or Oregon about, like how does this governor's race shape up and how I think there's a lot of centrists that are like, who do I vote for? Like to there, are. This, there are, there are, we need someone to help us understand like who's going to break for Betsy. Who's not, how do we do this? And I think well, I we're think all the biggest, like yes. armchair political strategists that have no idea what we're actually talking about. <laughs> well, no, we don't, but I think that it's a founded fear to be concerned that Betsy and Drazen will split and Tina will win. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it's hard because like in my heart, I very much want to vote for Betsy. I think somebody told me like vote your heart in the primary and your brain in the general. And I thought that was a really good thing to think about. But um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I really like her. I think she could be great for Oregon, but I'd also don't want to like throw away my vote and end up with Tina if I should have voted for Christine. So I think it'll be really interesting to it's going to be I mean, for someone who enjoys politics and I do, I think it's going to be a really interesting race to see, um, you know, and three women running for governor. It's kind of cool. Do you have any advice for new or young lawyers who want to be successful? Because I hear from a lot of lawyers who are unemployed or who are struggling or who are doing, they're doing document review in their windowless basement and, you know, they're being paid sums. I mean, a lot of these people are doing God's work. They're doing public defense work and they're being paid. What they're being paid would blow you away. You know, it's, it's between like 30 and $50 an hour. It's just terrible. My, one of my very good friends, her husband is a longtime criminal defense attorney in Oregon. And I, you're a hero. Like, honestly, you are literally like taking an economic hit to defend the constitutional rights of people. And it's appalling. Of sometimes extremely unlikable people. Right. I mean, it's appalling how we treat public defenders in this country, this state. It's appalling. And again, Tina Kotak, where have you been? This has been a burgeoning problem for years. Like the ABA did a report. I mean, this is not new, but they don't do it. I mean, why hasn't she funded public defense in this state? Like you're the speaker of the house. Like, is there anyone with more power to have funded public defense in the state than her? No. Has she done anything about it? No. And now we're at a point where we are just letting criminals out of jail because we don't have public defenders because they can't. And to your point about the court system, we were closed longer than just about anybody. So we've broken the entire criminal defense system. I was at call at some point in 21, maybe like summer, it was three hours long in Multnomah County because they're carrying so many cases. So now they have all these cases they didn't resolve while courts even in Washington have been functioning. Like we shut down for so long here. It was just nonsense. Anyway, I, I digress, but how to be successful. I think, um, I mean, you know, you have to work hard. I think it's hard to, I mean, right now, like most most firms are having a hard time hiring lawyers. So, I mean, lots of them are having, we're having a hard time hiring lawyers. So I would say if you're a young lawyer right now and you've been kind of out of the job market, this is a key time to apply for jobs. And and I think let's talk about what advantages you see of going to a brick and mortar law firm, because another thing that I'm hearing from people is I really want to succeed but my understanding, my inclination is not to join a firm. I don't want to deal with the, as you said, Kim, the quote unquote golden handcuffs problem. I, I don't want to get trapped by that. I don't want to join a firm because I want to be able to set my own hours after COVID. I'm sort of used to being on my couch and working from my laptop and kind of doing what I want to do and leaving what I want to leave. And um, I th- maybe we need to speak a little bit to that audience, because I think um, that portion of the the population makes up um, the the people that are are sort of feeling untethered. Um, I would say that working in a firm is 
uh, at least I don't, I mean, I'm not, I've never worked in a big firm, so I can't, my husband did for a while, but, um, so I can't really speak to that. Working in a small or medium sized firm, I think is like the absolute best way to practice law. Like, especially in Portland, like everybody is so nice. Like we have a massive open door policy. I can't imagine having practiced in any other way. It's a great way to learn, to practice. You're supported. You're going to make a reasonable living. You're not going to make the God sums that they're paying at the big firms right now, you're not going to make that. But over time, I had a great mentor at my firm and she said, it's not, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You'll make more money in the long term, you know, and she was right. Um, and it's a really supported way to practice law. There's someone to go ask how to do things, but I mean, I'll be candid. Like you got to get off the couch. You're not going to have a successful law career working at home. You're just not like not permanently. That's just not the way we practice law. It's a people business and you have to get out of your house and put a suit on and go to work. But if you're willing to do that, there are opportunities available to you. But and particularly right now, I mean, now is the time yeah. to get off the couch and put the suit on because they are hiring. Yeah. I mean, and they're looking actively for people very actively. I am on a, I'm the managing partner of my firm. I'm on the managing partners, you know, MBA has like a managing partners group. We have calls. Everyone is looking for good, talented lawyers right now. Everyone, like it is very hard to find people and it's a great opportunity. You need to be entrepreneurial. You need to be like, if you show up and say, I want to learn and I want to work, that's all you need to hear like that. But that's what we want to know. And we don't want to like, when you come in and you're like, well, I don't really want to work more than 1500 hours. And I don't, I'm, I'm sorry. Like that's not law practice. It's a hard job. It's rewarding though, but it's hard work. It's, but it's, you know, I don't know. I think old school, but I do think that if, you know, if you want to stop reviewing documents in your basement, there are opportunities available if you're willing to go after them, but it takes a little bit of gumption. Do you have any advice for people who have not spoken out under their names or under their identity, true identity, who are dissatisfied with Portland, who are feeling depressed, who are feeling angry maybe even about the state of affairs in Portland and want to see some kind of change but are scared of being let's say they they don't support Joanne Hardesty's policies but they they're scared of being called a racist they're scared of being called um, a misogynist do you have any advice for um, people who are dissatisfied but are scared I think if you're just careful with your words, um, then you shouldn't be afraid. Like there is nothing racist about disagreeing with Joanne's policies of defunding the police. Like that's not racist. I try to, you know, focus on the policies and positions of these people, not the people, right? Like, so like for one, you will never see me say anything about Joanne's uh, legal issues. Like I, uh, her judgment, whatever. Don't like, you think her inability to manage her personal finances might have a bearing on her ability or inability to deal with billions of dollars that Portland, Oregon is dealing with? It might, but I guess what I would say though is if the advice is how do I do this without being afraid that I'm going to be called a racist then the safer way to do that is to focus on her policies and not herself. Like, I think that's not her, not her personal life, not her personal 
um, activities, her personal conduct, all of those things. Like if you if you want to advocate for your positions, then you advocate based on policy. So like I voting, I support Renee over Joanne Hardesty because Renee wants to take a recognizes their service resistant people wants to take a hard stand against unsanctioned camping and she doesn't. And so if you say it that way, I don't think there's any opening to call me a racist because of that, because I'm not focusing on her. I'm focusing on the her policy positions that she openly states. And, you know, so that, I think that if you're afraid to speak out, I think that's a safer way of doing it. And you focus on policy positions, but you've been called a racist. You have, <laughs> you have not avoided that epithet. And so what advice would you give to people um, who are, how were you able to move past being called that and, and just continue on and forge ahead? How are you sitting here today and continuing to speak as, as who you, as under the name Kim McGarr, under your own name? Um, I mean, I think you do develop a little bit of a tough skin after the first few times. I mean, the first few, like when the person created the parody account of me, I was just like, oh my God, like it shook me. And then they were like posting things and I was like, oh my God, what if people think this is me? Like it was very, I can picture it. It was like a Sunday afternoon. My husband and I were both like, oh my God, who do we call? How do you deal with Twitter? And then days pass and it's like, nobody cares. Like those people don't have very many followers and at the end of the day, I'm fine. And so you just, I think once you go through a few of those events and you realize that like those people have no followers, nobody that matters cares about what they think and nothing bad has happened, you move on. I mean, again, but you could look at like a Jennifer Say and she's not in the same position I am. She did lose her job for saying- A very lucrative one. A very lucrative job for just saying that schools should open for God's sakes. It's insane. So I I, I am in a position where I, you know, maybe I'll regret this after this podcast, but where I don't feel like my career or my success or my place, I've lost like a ton of friends. I've lost a ton of friends in my school community. Um, I am a little bit of a pariah, particularly like at my kids K-8 and that hurts. But at the end of the day, they're not in their K-8 anymore. And also like, if you're not going to be my friend because of my position on school opening, then we weren't friends. Like that's insane to me or even my positions on politics. Like that's not, so I think losing friends is the hardest part for sure. Like I lost like my, like the people that I was in my like pandemic social bubble with, like hate me. And we have like no social relationship at all anymore. And we used to have drinks every, like almost every Friday night outside when we were doing that sort of thing. And because I thought schools should open and they were like, you're being mean to the teachers. <laughs> so I, I mean, it, maybe it's not for everybody, but I think you just see that at the end of the day, nothing really bad is going to happen. Nothing consequential. Like, so people call you a racist. I'm not a racist. I know I'm not a racist. Like I'm not a racist. So if you call me a racist, you're just... That's like calling me like a Hufflepuff. Like it's not a thing. Like I'm not. So I, and I'm confident in that. So I don't, I'm not going to stop saying what I believe because somebody's trying to, and I think it's a little, I have an anti-bully thing in me. I feel like those people are trying to bully me and I'm not giving in to them. Do you have regrets about losing those friendships or do you feel like they must not have been sustainable friendships because you have to be an authentic person to be in a consensual friendship with somebody. Yeah. I don't have regrets. I mean, I miss them, but I don't, 
Um, but obviously we weren't the friends I thought we were. Cause like, why would you not be my friend over my saying the data suggests that schools are open, which is literally, or schools are safe. Like, which is literally all I ever said. I mean, I certainly took on PAT, but, and, but again, like I took them on because they were wrong on the facts and the data. And I've been proven to be a hundred percent right on that. And so I, I, I don't, it's not like I said they were bad people or, I mean, maybe there are probably a few tweets out there that makes it sound like, I mean, teachers were tweeting about going to like skiing in the afternoon, like while they were being paid. I'm sorry, like that's terrible. And I'm going to tweet about that. But um, I think, yeah, I don't, I, the friendship couldn't have been genuine if you're going to drop me over something such as saying the data suggests that schools should be open and kids are suffering. Have you had anybody apologize to you or come to you and say, I really thought um, that that you were a nut job, but the data has proven you to be correct this whole time, and I'm I'm sorry. No, I mean, I would say like in our group because opening PDX schools was you know because it was Portland, we were probably the least aggressive of all the state groups, and we we're strong on getting rid of masks like this year and not all, not everybody in our own group. Like we had heated debates within opening PDX schools about masking and def that's the only place where people like in that group have said, okay, you guys were right. Like masks don't stop transmission of COVID in schools and we should never have had them in the first place. So that, but that, that would be the only place where there are certain people in our own group who were pro masking who have now realized that that isn't, was not effective and we shouldn't have done it, but not, not on the school opening issue. No. What do you say to people who say, well, N95s work, but then wear one. I mean, that's fine. But mandating, you know, mandating masking is not, it was never, I mean, it just was never so, especially once we had Omicron. I mean, the data just doesn't reflect that. And the only RCTs we have on masking is that they don't, cloth masks don't work. Like, that's all we have. And while, why we don't have a good, robust RCT after all this time, you'd have to ask, you know, Rochelle Walensky, but we don't. And the ones we have are the ones from Bangladesh and the one from Spain. And um, especially with kids, there's just no evidence that kids wearing cloth masks at school stops the spread of COVID. And so, and we've made it like a, I mean, my daughter's high school, like, I think they're still probably 50% masks. And they know they don't wear them any place but school. Tell me that we haven't done something wrong with kids when they obviously don't think they need a mask to be safe, but they wear them in school. Like, that's not, there's something seriously wrong with that. Have you spoken to any of those kids or, or do you know what their rationale is? I mean, my, like, my own child it, maybe maybe now she's mostly unmasked. Um, a lot of them just wear them under their chin, but they still wear them. Like, what what are you doing? Um, it's yeah, it's social pressure. You don't want to be told like, I mean, you don't want people to think you're a trumper. Like, those are things that they'll say. Like, if you don't, you know, if you don't wear a mask, you're a Republican or you're a right wing person or you're whatever. Like, they know they don't wear them around each other. They don't wear them to the store. They don't wear them out. They don't wear them when they go to coffee. They only wear them to school. What do you think of the argument that we should just issue N95s to all the school kids? I mean, no, because first of all, five to 11 year old, five to 18 year olds are all vaccinated if they want to be. Um, the risk to kids of COVID is like 0.000 something percent of a serious negative outcome from COVID. Like kids, 
we should never have tried to stop, I know this is gonna sound like heresy, we should never have tried to stop kids from getting COVID, particularly once we had vaccines for vulnerable people. Like I get the point that they bring them home, fine. Once we had vaccines for the elderly um, and for immunocompromised people, you know, which is like, you know, fall, winter of, you know, January, February, March of 2021, um, we should have stopped trying to keep kids from getting COVID. 75%, I mean, the CDC says there's 75% seroprevalence, which means that like 75% of kids in the United States have already had COVID. And like in very, like there's almost no record of a healthy child dying of COVID. Like that's what Marty McCary says. He's looked at all this data. He's from John Hopkins. There is like no evidence of a, of a healthy child that was not already immunocompromised dying of COVID in the United States. Um, Germany says the same thing. They have no record of a healthy child dying of COVID. It's, we just went crazy. And these parents, I feel bad for these parents. They're still terrified. People still have their under fives like locked up because they're not vaccinated. And it's like your under five has like, they're way more at risk of getting RSV or the flu. RSV puts babies in hospital. We've never done any of this for RSV. Like we've just broken people's brains about COVID and kids should never have been masked. And we see like speech therapy is through the roof because they haven't learned to speak. They're hearing, they have hearing issues. Like we have really, you know, to say that masks are harmless is just, it's not, it, you know, it's just wrong. But um, it's, you know, a very heretic position in, in Portland. And it, I, I hope by 2020, you know, by fall 2022, our kids are finally unmasked at school. But the fact that like the elementary kids dropped it before the high school kids, I think is super fascinating from a sociological perspective, right? They're like, they don't have all that social pressure, but there's like social pressure to wear masks, even though they know that they're not keeping them safe and they've all had COVID and they don't care. You know, like everybody I mean, my daughter will say, no one's afraid of getting COVID. We're just afraid of getting canceled. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, it's, you know, in liberal Portland. So I think, I don't know. And I think even in the suburbs, there's still, a lot of kids are still wearing masks. So, and some some kids are genuinely afraid. And if you want to wear an N95 to protect yourself, go for it. Like, you know, and you really believe that you need that protection. I don't have any, I'm not a person who's ever going to say, oh my God, you're stupid for wearing masks. Like, do do you do you but to have mandated them for as long as we did here. And again, when we knew that they weren't wearing masks in Europe, they weren't wearing masks in the South, they weren't wearing masks in the South in 2020, and kids were not dying and teachers weren't dying. Yeah, like I said, it was a great observational study mm -hmm. that we just decided not to take into account. Right, yeah, exactly. So. Well, we've said it all. I yeah, we like. really have. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> no, I really appreciate you having me and what you're doing. I mean, the minute your podcast came out, but I've been a strong listener, so I appreciate it's courageous. It's absolutely courageous what you're doing and that you're willing to say these things and say them in this public sphere. And I think you're making a difference. And I think we all, we just need more, we need more use. Yeah.